Yeah, and for those who don't know, Dougals is on the road right now, but he actually brought a fishbowl with the paper topics in, and he just he reached in right now. It was was that your carry on on the plane? I'm not, or what? I'm not playing around. I didn't bring any underwear, <laughs> but I do have all of our podcast topics. Perfect. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Got my fort set up. Yeah, you're in a dark cave. What's going on? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No newspapers either. <laughs> what do you mean no newspapers? <laughs> you know, when you're in a dark cave, people like hold up the newspaper, so... No one's like hold up the newspaper when you're. Everyone is like everyone's like hold up the newspaper. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> How are you doing? Oh man. How you doing? I'm a little under the weather, which is no fun. But I'm done with uh, work for the year, which is pretty exciting. Oh, that's real exciting. Can yeah. one be over the weather, or is it only under the weather? I mean, I think most of the time I'm over most of it. So yeah, okay. I think you, yeah. I think typically I'm over the weather. You're like hiding out in a fort between a couple pillows on the road right now. And what's funny is, I don't know if our listeners know the typical podcasting situation. You have a nice setup in the, in the home digs, and then I have a little studio out in my backyard. Although today, my podcasting studio is 10 degrees, and you are kneeling between two pillows. Who do you think has a better <laughs> setup right now, Diggles? No comment. <laughs> Well, I think we should get into it. We got lots of listener mail this week, which is awesome. I think I had at least uh, three things hit my radar. I know you had some stuff coming into the Gmail box. Uh, how about you kick us off? I'm going to get some listener mail in here. That is a little bit of a maybe a wrap up, a capstone, as it were, on something that we talked about before around the better.com CEO. So this is some stuff I had not seen. What we talked about last time was the the mishandling, I would say, the inhumane mishandling of the layoff of about 900 better.com employees is what we talked about last time. This time, though, this player, because that's the only word I can think of right now, this player, Garg, he sent an email to employees at some point. I don't know when this was. And I'm just going to give a couple quotes from this because I can't, I, can't even I can't even imagine this. He said, you are a bunch of dumb dolphins and dumb dolphins get caught in nets and eaten by sharks. So stop it. Stop it. Stop it right now. You are embarrassing me. This is all caps, too. Just, I mean, if all, there was all any caps. doubt. All <laughs> caps. All caps. Well, I'm trying to, like, so I read this. Thank you for sending this in. I read this, and I'm trying to picture what possible scenario would lead me to send this to my team. Like, and I was like, like, when would, not even, okay, let's say I didn't even send this to my team. Let's say that I just thought this about my team. So it didn't even, I, I could have stopped myself before sending it. Yeah, yeah. What, what could your team possibly do that you go, you know what they is? They dumb dolphins. Like, I... what, 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 what is, how much disrespect do you have to have for the humans that are like giving their time, energy, et cetera, to you in order to, to think about them that way? And the people that you and your team hired as well. I mean, they work at your company. Um, exactly. So they've gone through some vetting process. I don't get it, man. Uh, this this guy doesn't seem like a great dude. Hopefully, he'll be reformed soon because he's had a, a rough couple of years. Alas. All right. Anyway, thank you for thank you for the listener mail. I 
I just yeah. I, the other I, can, I cannot uh, I cannot let that I cannot let that let that slide. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I'm glad to call it out. We we definitely got some stuff on Arc funds uh, in the listener box, basically being minted for European investors. I, I think there's ETFs over there, and you can go three times leverage. You could go all this other stuff. Just hilarious. We're gonna talk about Arc more in the show, but appreciate hearing about that. And then there's a really awesome uh, South Park that I think Donald Kent set in a South Park video making fun of NFTs and stuff. That's a good watch too. I'd recommend that. It's quite um, genius. <laughs> it's it's just typical of those guys, man. It's so funny. So do you do we want to build on that arc theme? Uh, unfortunately, we talk about Kathy Wood too much. But man, again, she seemed to dominate the market news this week. Let me just kick it off with uh, this is a headline from a from a, a post that she wrote that we are not in bubble territory, but in deep value territory. I'll give you. $10,000. If you can give me one metric that shows that we are in deep value territory, you have 10 seconds. You're talking about Kathy Wood or me? The market. Anything that's not like a, a timber company. Right, so let me, let, we'll get back to ARC, but let's do this roundabout way. There's this awesome chart that came from Meb Faber. And I really am going to try and articulate it verbally. Um, but you, we'll put it on the Twitter. You might have to look at it. So he says he looks at percent of global stocks that are at various valuation methods. So the um, y-axis is basically the percentage. And then the x-axis is a CAPE ratio metric where expensive is on the right-hand side and cheap is on the left-hand side, right? He plots three time frames, which are really, really fascinating. So 1999, 2009, and 2021. What he finds in 1999 is almost everything, like 35% of all stocks were had a CAPE greater than 40. And for those who don't know, CAPE is a cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. Just think of it as an average uh, PE ratio over 10 years. So in 1999, the large majority of things are on that right-hand side of the graph. Dougal's almost everything's expensive, right? In 2009, after the Great Depression, Sorry, the Great, Great Recession. recession. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never liked how they made those things rhyme because it's just too easy to say the wrong one. But almost all the market is cheap globally. So the majority of stocks, almost 45% of them, had a cape between 10 and 14%, right? So like those two are no-brainer things. Like One was incredibly expensive. The other was incredibly yeah. cheap. And just contextualizing this, so you're saying 99. So that's getting to the height of the dot-com yeah. bubble 2009 is getting to the bottom after the great financial crisis exactly yep so now do you want to guess where that distribution looks like in 2021 because i was a little surprised by it i would assume it's closer to 99 than it is to, to 2009 i think that's probably fair but, but, but this is global thing, is this global it is global yeah oh, okay that's hard to like that's really because we, we know have, we have a bunch of places that are like nonsense right like garbage nonsense right now so yeah and i think i may follow up to see if i can get the u.s base one but what's what's fascinating about this is this basically splits the two it's halfway between 99 and halfway between uh 2009 in terms of the majority of stocks right now are somewhere between 14 and 30 which is kind of in that normal range so i expected this to look more expensive than it 
than it is currently. But again, that's part of that's the global piece. And that's why you should have some investments outside of the US in all likelihood be to shy away from the expensiveness. Anyway, to be, but if we go back to Kathy Wood with that slight detour, no part of the market right now is screaming deep value or incredibly cheap. Uh, to confirm that further, if I run my deep value screen that I use for my quantitative strategy in 2009, I'll have like 30 to 50 stocks in the US hit. Right now, I'm running it and I'm getting maybe three, maybe five. I mean, there's not a bunch of deep value out there. Kathy Wood is off a rocker on that point. And I bet you that the three to five that are showing up on your screen are not in her portfolio. I will guarantee you that <laughs> there's nothing about innovation. <laughs> She's not like 35% hooker furniture and 25% like, you know, I don't know. What do you telephone data Frazier, timber and like 25%? Yeah. Your, your tele telephone data systems. No. Mm -mm. Yeah. So, uh, in addition to that, she said that she expects innovation companies market cap to grow from what they are today, which is roughly 14 trillion to over 200 trillion in 2030. And no to give that some context, uh, the current, according to ARC, I haven't double checked this, but the entire global stock market today is $109 trillion. So I know exponential growth is a crazy thing and the human mind doesn't manage it well. And I know 2030 is still nine years away, but she's taking out a large subset of stocks, which she wouldn't classify as innovation and saying, oh gosh, I got to do some quick math. 12 times. I mean, her, the stuff she classifies as innovation is going to multiply by 12 times in nine years. She's off her rocker, man. This just makes no sense. However, if you have to, this actually isn't a however, this is a double down on what you just said, but I'm going to say, however, if you also take into account, and this is just pure speculation, if you take into account the stock market sometime in the next three to four years gets cut in half, now, now the level of exponential growth that you need to get there is even, is even greater. Well, and that's the thing that, because we, we've talked about this, we've gone decade by decade and talked about uh, max drawdowns by decade and we've you can look at any of the graphs and see like basically we're overdue for a recession because typically they hit about every or a significant pullback i should say not necessarily a recession uh typically they, they hit about every decade and we've been humming since 2009 like we're just not going to continue humming with no correction through 2030 that would be absolutely unheard of i hope somebody freezes their assets just for her own sake <laughs> Honestly, I'm just like, like, you can't be trusted to invest right now. I think we might be part of like living in the matrix or something. I think this is just a big prank on the podcast because every week <laughs> yeah. I go, I don't want to talk about Kathy Wood. Like, I'm just not that interested. Yeah. yeah one one uh, day, one day she and Aston Kutcher are just going to show up in the, the podcast studio. <laughs> it's a big episode of Punked. Yeah, because it's not that. It shouldn't impact me. I shouldn't even care. But somehow she does something every week that just seems so out there that I have to vent on it. All right, last thing on ARC, I think. Morningstar did an awesome piece this week where they looked at inflows and outflows of her main ETF. And listen, the reason she has such notoriety right now is because for the past five years, she's had annualized returns of 41.3%. Absolutely incredible stuff. 2020 absolutely incredible returns 
However, and this is just a good reminder for everyone, based on their estimates for inflows and outflows, when money came into the fund, the large majority of money did not come into the fund until late 2020. And her performance since late 2020 has been uh, very poor, I think. I mean, I think she's down 30% or more. So they estimate the average investor return over the past five years has been about 10%. The difference from 41.3 to 10% Doogles is absolutely massive. I, it's, this, is, this is just a freezer assets. I did, this was a, to your point, this is a really like solid piece by Morningstar and the, they had three takeaways at the end, which I think are fairly universal. Even if you take ARC out of this, um, I, I thought their takeaways at the bottom were really great at this. The three takeaways are one, triple digit returns don't repeat. Yep. Two is risk matters. And that in this context is just showing that uh, in order to get a lot of high return, you also have to have high concentration, high risk, most likely. And if you look at volatility and all of that, like it, it just it it matters to your portfolio, especially as we've talked about so much to your own psychology and how yeah. you can you can you live through that, right? Those drawdowns. And third is consider dollar dollar cost averaging. And as they state, I think this is a quote from there, uh, dollar cost averaging often gets a bad rap because it typically leads to lower total returns. However, it is, especially from a psychological perspective, it's a healthy way for many investors um, to make sure that you are staying in the market, continue to invest. Um, It also gets away from timing, which is a a bad idea, right? As given, given, given your... uh, what you talked about from the Morningstar piece around the 40% to 10%, that has to do, that's timing, right? This is the time that I should get in, right? The psychology gets behind that. So I thought those are three really good takeaways. Triple digit returns don't repeat, risk matters, and consider dollar cost averaging. I agree. And I'm trying to be better about this. If you don't know what dollar cost averaging is, all we're really talking about there is picking a fixed amount of money that you regularly invest in in an asset of your choice. So it could be a hundred bucks every paycheck. It could be uh, 500 bucks a month. It could be whatever you want. It just forces you to buy on a regular basis, almost regardless of price. And what that does for you is it allows you to buy more of that asset when the price goes down, uh, which has a lot of advantage downturn uh, in the long term. And then it takes a lot of the investor psychology out of it. The other thing I'll mention from this piece, and then we'll wrap with ARC, is um, just something I found interesting and hadn't looked at it in a while. So back in 2017, her fund had just over a hundred million in assets, and then at its peak, it went to almost twenty six billion in assets, and that's in four years, basically. It's impressive. I mean, this thing caught fire. It yeah, would, take everything flows. else away from it. That's really impressive. Oh, I mean, props to she's done a lot of. She's good at at a lot of things, especially social media. So, all right, what's in your fishbowl, Doogles? All right, I'm going to dip into the fishbowl to go back to a topic we haven't talked about in a little while. That's micro strategy. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Dougals is on the road there right now, but he actually brought the fishbowl with the paper topics in, and he just he reached in right now. It was was that your carry on on the? Plan I'm not. I'm not playing around. I didn't bring any underwear, but <laughs> I do have all of our podcast topics. Perfect, dedication. Yeah. Uh, so MicroStrategy is an analytics firm. Historically, we've we've covered this in the past. Uh, founded back in the 1990s, and as of late, over the past. 12 to 18 months, MicroStrategy has, according to their 10K, and we went through like the number of words. If you want to go, I can't remember what episode this was, but we can put that on the Twitter. We went back and looked at their 10K and they started mentioning Bitcoin and crypto more than they mentioned analytics. So it's, it's like a core part of their strategy now is buying Bitcoin. 
So MicroStrategy now has billions of dollars in Bitcoin they've accumulated. What came out this week was they're looking at what they should do with that Bitcoin. And here's a quote from, from their CEO, Michael Saylor. There may be opportunities to either put a mortgage against it and generate long-term debt under favorable circumstances, which we could leverage up against the Bitcoin, or we think that we could lend it to a trustworthy counterparty. So crypto lending is like a thing that's, yeah. you know, that, that's been going on and whatnot. This is, Michael Saylor's a, from any, anything I can see, right? Smart dude. And this might be a time to do something yep. like this, but what it, even separate from MicroStrategy, what it just gets me thinking about, and this gets me going back to the GFC, not, not KFC, just to be clear, but the great financial <laughs> crisis, again, is leveraging off of a speculative, volatile asset. So not just speculative, but also really volatile. And when you start leveraging off of that, especially when you've got billions of dollars, that's, that's one of those like recipe for disaster type situations. Maybe not even for MicroStrategy, to, to be honest, but more- No, for like, not for MicroStrategy, yeah, I don't but, think. But, but for the system, it's just, a, it's more, for me, it's like symbolic, potentially more, more than anything else. But I just think, I think it's fascinating. For them, it could be, it could make a lot of sense. I mean, if you can get favorable terms off of your $5 billion Bitcoin and taking, uh, taking advantage of like the, uh, the current perception, right, in Bitcoin, like that could be really smart for MicroStrategy. But that is, a, it's, it, the fact that that exists today, I think, especially if it ends up being at some scale like that, to me is pretty scary. Yeah, I actually, I don't claim to know all the ins and outs of this, but I like this approach. If I was his CFO um, and he had a very large asset that wasn't Bitcoin, I'd be trying to figure out how we generate yield off of that, right? And so I think this is a natural progression. We've talked about how we had some concerns about his strategy and basically the potential impact that it could have to his employees. Um, because I always thought it was weird that he just didn't just go crazy with this with personal wealth. And then when he started issuing bonds, I mean, he he's already leveraged up Dougal's remember this, yeah. like, yeah, it's true. He took on all sorts of debt just to buy Bitcoin. So that that aside, if he has an asset that he can generate yield on, I would applaud that. And, and it should hopefully now, this is where uh, you may have to correct me if my assumption is wrong, but if he can generate yield and he doesn't turn around and leverage that again, I like it because I want him to reduce his leverage as it comes to Bitcoin. If he's just trying to create this vicious cycle to get more leverage to buy more Bitcoin, I get concerned. <laughs> yeah, that, that is concerning. That is concerning. <laughs> Th this seems more calculated Good. than that, but from according to the article i read so who who really knows in the end what's the next yeah, new fishbowl he, he's fascinated all right so i have a quiz for you finance insider which i think is uh business insider's counterpart or something i think they're just branding everything as insider to try and charge people money for subscriptions um love it came out with a list of the top 25 richest people in congress now i find this list incredibly boring and i'm certainly not paying for subscription but i want you to guess where that threshold is so if you're drawing a line at the 25th wealthiest person in congress how much do you think they're worth i would say three million 21.4 million dollars so there are 25 people in congress that are worth more than 21 million dollars isn't that shocking it goes back to what we were talking about oh man it seems like all the fed governors it's like Yes, it is shocking, obviously, because I guessed three million. So it it is shocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it but it does it it ties back into it, it's all of it seems maybe it shouldn't be surprising, because when I 
like when I go and think about it, like now that you say that, I'm like, okay, that that goes according to a theme, but I think I don't want to believe it. I think it's kind of what it is. Yeah, I think that's well said because to me, it's just like you're representing the interests of the people who, at least financially, you have very, very little in common with. Yep. Um, and so it's bizarre. That lady, I forget her name, um, she, her great-grandfather, if I remember correctly, was one of the founders of Qualcomm. So it's like just trust fund, basically, um, is the majority of her wealth. But yeah, there's 24 people <laughs> worth more than that. It's crazy. I mean, just absolutely mind-boggling to me. Here's another, uh, we'll, we'll dive in for, not mind-boggling, but a little bit of a, a fun play, I'll say, on the supply chain shortage right now, which for the most part, not fun. So Kraft, you familiar? Oh, yeah. They make one of the finest delicacies of all time, the mac and cheese. Kraft, they have decided that there's a cream cheese shortage. Sorry, they have not decided there's a cream cheese shortage. Let me start that over again. So there is a cream <laughs> they, cheese shortage. They just, they just <laughs> yeah. said we don't like cream cheese. We, we have <laughs> declared. <laughs> yeah. So there's a cream cheese shortage right now. So like bagel shops is like, y'all can't get cream cheese, right? It's, it's, it's not positive. What Kraft has decided, though, is the way that they're going to fight this shortage during the holidays is that they are going to pay people to have a different dessert than cheesecake. Because this is the time of year, people trying to make a lot of cheesecake, you need the cream cheese to make cheesecake. So what Kraft has said is they're gonna, they're gonna give people $20 to buy some different dessert. So you can go to their website, you buy a different dessert, you upload the receipt, and they will within four to five weeks, that seems like a like an aggressive <laughs> period of time. They're gonna, it, it takes four to five weeks it's... for them to like, to gather $20. They, they send it over to Michael the monkeys or something? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I don't know. But up to 18,000 people can take advantage of this. Um, so it's a... <laughs> okay, this sounds like too good to be true. I got I to make sure I heard you right. So if I buy any dessert from Kraft that's not cream cheese, up to $20, they'll pay for it? This is what it seems like. Go do your... This is research advice. <laughs> not, <laughs> do your due not, diligence. Not dessert, not, not dessert <laughs> advice. Go go on and search for it but that is that's that is what it seems like this is also one of those things it's kind of like when i watch a when i watch a movie and at the end of it i go really like you made that and then my next thought is what didn't make it through like which pitches like didn't make it if that movie made it what what else did they come up with because you know that there was like an emergency meeting on a sunday where they said we've got this cream cheese shortage we got to figure out what to do with cheesecake and a bunch of people pitched a whole bunch of stuff. Who was the person that did the, cal did the calculus that said, if we pay 18,000 people $20, we get the ROI? <laughs> I don't know where that comes oh, from. Oh, man. I wish that was... That sounds like a fun job, to be honest. Yeah, it does. It really does. <laughs> All right. You want to talk drawdowns? I have uh, some good stats on Ooh. worst equity excess returns drawdowns across countries in USD terms. This starts as early as the year 1900. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So here's, there's, there's three key metrics here. There's the country, the magnitude of losses, and the years to recover from the start of the drawdown. Okay. So I'm going to give you an example. This is an easy one. In 1912, this is related to World War I in Russia. The Russian stock market went down 100%, went bust, and basically never recovered they say they say years to recover is never i think they like 
re that stock market officially died and they reincorporated later with a brand new index basically kind of get the gist of the game here yep okay the second one i'm going to give you as well because it's similar with a slightly different outcome so this is germany in world war one starting in 1912 went down 99 percent and took 47 years to recover they had another world war in there yeah i'm sure that was part of the reason it took 47 years so so there's that that was the right. we, we discussed a couple episodes ago germany in the 1920s was like getting it was slammed a little bit up slammed a little bit up and so they they had roller coaster during that time anyway continue. absolutely so you have any guesses for other countries that might appear on this list and then uh, i want to hear your guess for the uh u.s in terms of the worst drawdown so i can just name countries united states <laughs> I'm always so bad at these quizzes. <laughs> All right. The U.S. started in 1929 associated with the Great Depression. Which the stock market went down 85%. percent mm -hmm. Took 16 years to recover. And looking at that list, in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty solid number. We're lucky how are they to defining, go. How are they defining recover? I believe, but I'd have to dive into the methodology. But I'm pretty sure that it uh, relates to when the actual physical price gets above where it was at the start of the previous drawdown so like you know i'll just say we're at 100 it went down to 15 then it took uh 16 years to get to 101. that makes sense but i, I guess i'm thinking and it probably just depends on how all the stuff is measured but peak came in 1929 i think the trough came in 1934 and then it hit, hit back to peak in 1954 i'm pretty sure so like i'm just i'm curious as to uh it might be a different index than the s p or something uh 54 though that so by your math it'd be 15 years instead of 16 years right so yeah i'd say that's we're talking about no it'd be thing. like 20 years depending on what you it'd be 20 years from the trough 34 to 54 or it oh, depends I on see what, what you're saying yeah so i'm just i'm like there there's some anyway it doesn't matter there, there's some other like uh definition that they have there or maybe a different index <laughs> um some other interesting ones on the list is Gosh, I mean, Japan starting in 1989. This is funny, too, because to your point on the methodology, it went down 75%. They say in terms of years to recover, it's 29 and counting. I thought within the past three years, uh, Japan's index finally was higher than it was in 89, but I could be wrong. I guess the thing that jumped out to me about this list and the thing that I th think is frequently worth talking about is... There's no, I mean, diversification within a country or sometimes even across multiple countries doesn't mean that you never get a 50% drawdown or an 80% drawdown or more. Like it's baked in and whether it's inflationary pressure, great depressions, world wars, political turmoil, like these things can take a stock market to its knees in no time. It's it's real. This is This is where the dollar cost averaging just buy and hold like don't don't check your stocks every week right this is where all that kind of stuff kind of comes from right yeah um i do and i can will continue to but you don't um because it yeah it this is it's legit this stuff is real yep. like psychologically and listen i'll throw that out on the twitter too in case anyone wants to do a deep dive in the methodology um i didn't do that before i dive it into the graphic all right, can I bring up something that you're not going to enjoy? Oh, I'm so excited for it. 
I don't even have to reach reach uh, deep into the fishbowl for this one because it's just what's going on right now. So we had this week, ending on Wednesday, we had the last Fed meeting of the year. Skippy doesn't care about this kind of stuff. Oh, no. I, I, I didn't realize you were going here. Now I get it. Don't, don't get up. Are you about to leave? <laughs> I'm all right. <laughs> so we had the last Fed meeting. What was so fascinating immediately to me about this, and I, I, I know some of the things that could be behind this, but what was really fascinating was over the last, I call it a month, roughly, um, in addition to the, the latest COVID strain was also that was hitting the market, was also the fact that people were saying, all right, inflation is starting to really take off. The Fed is going to act more quickly, right? They're going to taper more quickly. They're going to raise rates more quickly. All that stuff's going to happen. So the market was getting hit. Okay. Yeah. The Fed came out and the Fed said that we're going to taper twice as fast. So that means we're going to stop buying back bonds twice as fast as we thought. And it's likely that's going to lead to like three rate increases next year. So basically the Fed came out and said that they're going to do what people said that they were afraid was going to happen. Yep. Okay. The market reaction to the immediate market reaction to this was everything went up like aggressively. I mean, it was a, it was such a ferocious increase that I went, okay, so the reason the market has been down is because everyone was afraid that this was going to happen. This happened and the market just starts to, to go back up. Now, there, there are other market forces that are behind that. But I, when I was looking at this, I mean, like the unwinding of like positions and things like that, there's like a lot of mechanics that can get behind stuff like this. Yeah. But I just went, it reminded me of like a high school relationships where somebody's like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid Johnny, I'm afraid Johnny's going to date Sally. I don't want Johnny to date Sally. And then Johnny dates Sally. And you're like, Johnny, I want you. And I'm just like, hold on now. I mean, <laughs> that Johnny Sally, that's, a, that's an all timer. Um, to me, this is why I always tell people, let me, let me tell you a personal story. People come to me and go, Hey, what's up with the stock market? Where's it going? What's happening? And I go, it's a coin flip deal with it, especially short term. And then they get a sad look on their face and they try and change the subject to talk about something else. Cause I'm so boring. Right? Like it, you can't even begin to predict what the short term day minute reaction is going to be it's just nonsensical like you said whatever happens the wall street journal is going to write uh stocks are up because the fed uh alluding to raising rates gives more confidence in the economy but if stocks would have gone down when the fed did the exact same thing the wall street journal would have wrote stocks are down because price of borrowing is going to get more expensive and that's bad for the economy you know like it's just nonsensical yeah. What I've noticed, though, that is correct. And what I've noticed is that articles, you use the word because. Articles are leaving out the word because, and they're using the word and, so that you can just replace it with anything. It'll say, Omicron variant is going rampant, and the stock market's down 10 points. <laughs> Whether or not there's a relationship doesn't matter. They, wrote, they write like the two things separately. It's like a Mad Lib, where you say, like, name the thing that's occurring, use the word and. And then state the thing that's occurring in the market. And that's it. That's actually Fed says better. They're tapering faster. And the markets are going up. I mean, that's actually better. I, I hope that's the case. Maybe I'm just missing it because there's no causation correlation here in the short term. I can show you a bunch of data that says it's complete hogwash for anything less than a year, basically. And sometimes le uh, less than three to five years is still pretty random. Regardless of how you feel about it and regardless of what happened in the markets uh, that day. This is it's a this is material. The, the yeah. Fed's decision here is is very material. 
especially on the interest rate piece. Now, over what time period it's material, I think is still a question. But the reason I say it's material is because we are in a place where we have debt that's at all-time highs in every every facet, right? Government debt, all-time highs, consumer debt, all-time highs, corporate debt, all-time highs. Interest rates matter for debt because it matters that 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 changes the amount that you have to pay back, right? Your interest rate payments. And so interest rates going up, it changes the amount that zombie companies specifically, which I'll design a zombie company as a company that is effectively only able to operate right now because they have really cheap debt. It changes their ability to pay potentially. But the yep. reason I say that it depends on the over the period of time is because we're at basically 0% interest. And so going from 0% to 0.25% to 0.5%, you know, whatever, like when you, when you're still at that level, it's questionable, the impact, but it may not matter until we start getting into 2%, 3%, you know, something along those lines. I don't really know. I'm all that math, but it's still, it's material. It's a big deal that we're starting to get out of that world. And sorry, my rant is almost over and we don't have any more weapons. That's the other reason. I'd state it. The Fed has no more weapons. So whatever Hatton, Hatton right now. Oh, I'm excited. I think this is the right move. I would be more aggressive than they're being. But listen, I'm not the Fed chair. But they might, they might get more aggressive, actually. Like we, we don't know. It's about time to say, I mean, when inflation's at 7%. And it, listen, I know there's so many factors that are artificially inflating that. One is the economy stopped a year ago because of COVID stuff. And you often compare based on last year. There's there's some other noise in those numbers, but unemployment is good if not great. Um, I know Pal said we're not at full unemployment uh, just yet, but like or full employment. I mean, I think it's time to put some weapons back in the tool chest because we're gonna need them at some point. Truth. What's next up in your fishbowl? I doubt you know. But uh, being a high-flying momentum investor, um, you know, drives fancy cars, living the Dougal's life. What's the what's the most expensive stock you've like purchased or maybe owned in the recent past? You have any price to sales multiples for me? Uh, price to sales, I don't know, but right now, Nvidia is the most expensive that I have. It's certainly my. And let me, I can grab that for you, but it's certainly my most expensive, like my longest held, I think most expensive, I think is probably what I'd say. Yeah. But even that, Dougals, there's a backstory just uh, for that. I want the listeners to know. I mean, you and I have talked off the record and maybe even on the pod about your concerns about NVIDIA's current price and yep. feeling like it's probably not worth its current multiple. So there's a quote from 2002 from Scott McNally, uh, CEO of Sun Microsystems at the time that I think is really good. And so we're going to talk about this and then we're going to talk a little bit about Tesla as it relates to this. So he says, we were selling at 10 times revenues when we were at $64 a share. At 10 times revenues, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders, which obviously this is me adding parenthetically, you can't. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard for a company of 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay zero taxes, which is also kind of really hard. That is... <laughs> um, sorry, I'll pause because I'm laughing now. You see where this is going? 
I, I it's it's surprising to me that Scott McNeely would say something like this, but I could understand you saying something like this. But continue. Hey, it's a quote from him, so I'll continue. That assumes you pay no taxes on dividends, which is kind of illegal. That assumes you have zero R and D for the next ten years, and I can maintain a current revenue run, maintain a current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at sixty four dollars per share? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? So here's the line I'll pull out of there, which mic I think... drop. <laughs> no, you don't have a mic in your hand. Here's the line I'm going to pull out of there, which is my pushback for that. Y'all ready for this? Yeah, you're going to say the stock's going to grow out of it. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to find okay. different words to thematically <laughs> mean that same thing. So the line I'm going to pull out is, is that that assumes... I'm I'm going to maintain the same revenue run rate. Sure. That that is one of the things that's stated in there. And yeah, if your if your revenues grow up by ten times or a hundred times, it's a different ballgame, right? Yeah. When you're when you're buying and when you're buying companies like that, the belief that you have is that there is a it's a a step change that ends up occurring in that organization, whether you call it organ um, exponential growth or something different. There's a step change. You're not buying 10 times revenue for a company that where you expect the revenue run rate to stay the same. Like those two things don't don't live in the same world, right? Like a and I'm I'm not gonna justify the what with Nvidia a few weeks ago, because Nvidia has gone down by 10, 20% recently. Yeah. Nvidia a few weeks ago was at like 110 or something like that, right? Uh PE. That's not sales, but translate that, right? I, I can't remember what it's what its sales were. But with a company like Nvidia. And again, I'm not justifying that. It's way too expensive. It's out of control. Wait, price earnings was one a hundred and ten. Yeah, not oh, enough. Hold on. Not I enough. Total, some, total. I gotta do some research on this. Anyway, okay. Um, something like that. But but regardless, you don't believe that Nvidia is gonna have the same revenue run rate that it has right now. You believe that Nvidia has like almost an unforeseen capability to create exponential step change growth. That, that's that's the belief that has to go along with this so you can't you kind of can't put those two things together i mean i guess i knew you'd say that and that's that that has that's the only way you make a hypothesis for a stock that's that expensive right yeah but but i'm coming hold on let me let me jump back in let's go to the extreme just to paint the picture and i know this is the far far extreme but you know i come from the startup world when a startup raises its let's call it series a and you raise your series a and you've got 30 dollars in revenue if you don't yeah. believe in, in investing in something that has a multiple, what are you going to pay for that, for, for that company? Are you going to be like, okay, you have $30 in revenue. What I'm going to do is I'm going to invest in you at a $35 total valuation. Like that, that, like that you can't do it, right? I know that's an extreme, but to, like, put, to set a principle, that means that there are, organi- there are types of organizations where you believe that the growth rate is, is not even comparable to where the company currently is and therefore the valuation ends up being like what seems mind-blowing now when you go to a, when you go to organizations that are in the billions of dollars like that looks different but but companies do it yeah no it's but rare. so um i love your perspective because it's uh it's different than mine and it makes me think but hey listen series a nvidia is not in series a i don't know when they ipo'd but i'm i pulled up some numbers i've been around since at least uh 2012. It, they're early 2000s is that right with my speculation do you know what the video was founded in the 90s okay so 
like it's not <laughs> we're we're 25 plus years in like it's not series a Deagles. i hate to break it to you it's just not their current price to revenues according to morningstar is 29 right in line with the tesla which is somewhere in that range that's absolutely insane i'm looking at their revenue growth for the past 10 years um it is when basically from 4 billion in revenue to going on 24 uh, billion in revenue in the past 10 years i mean i don't think in the next 10 years their revenue is going up 30 times i just don't um i could be wrong and i'm happy to eat crow i'll come on the pod and eat crow but man this is expensive that's all i guess that's all i'm saying and it's funny to hear a former ceo put it just put that analogy out there um uh, because it certainly resonates with me yeah, no, I, I I get it. I my my I know Nvidia is not Series A, and Nvidia is way too expensive. Like both of those things are true. I only brought up the Series A point to say that when you take a principled approach and say broadly that there are times to invest in organizations at multiples that may not make sense because they have potential like step chains exponential like returns that you can't see in them today. That that was all I was saying, principled perspective. Yeah. But I understand. I understand what 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 are you saying there. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. <laughs> well, well, so listen, we don't give investment advice on the show. Let's just say I'm not buying NVIDIA anytime soon. Maybe when it has a, a Germany-like drawdown of 99%, I'll jump on board. Yeah, if it goes down 99%, it's going to be at like September 2021 prices. So, <laughs> joke. Best joke of the show right there. I love it. That's just really made me think. The other thing I want to throw in, and then we'll see if anything else is in your fishbowl, is um, Michael Mobison did Masters in Business this week with Barry, Ritzel, Barry Ritholtz. Oh, that's um, got to be a good conversation. I didn't see that one. Really enjoy that. So he's breaking down the revision of his book called Expectations Investing. And that's another one kind of along the same theme is like, he's so smart. I don't always think like him but i love listening to him because it will really make you think he he starts and the the book largely pushes back on multiples and saying you have to understand the full financial picture and strategy rather than doing shorthand with multiples which i completely agree with but multiples are a shortcut that often help people get to a place quickly to enable that next deep dive right um so fascinating conversation if you're into that sort of like nuance with accounting and financial statements and business strategy, um, he's always worth listening to. So I'd recommend that pod. I appreciate that recommendation. I'm going to go listen to it myself. Thank you. Sweet. Thank you. Uh, you got anything else going on? No, I think that's it. Uh, Maybe an announcement, right? Next episode is the one year anniversary of the Skippy and Diggle show. Can you believe it? We made it's it. 50 second episode. We have uh, broadcasted from 10 plus states <laughs> when we're over the weather and under the weather. Um, we're we're uh, still a top quartile podcast. People seem to like the thing. Uh, yeah. We appreciate all the listeners. Listeners in Africa, Costa Rica, Russia, India, etc. cetera, uh, Canada, Ireland. It's great. Uh, we're yeah, really wonderful. excited about it. And so as so, always, please... Uh, Please make sure to rate and review the podcast. It helps people to find find us, get more listeners, 
Um, if you want to get in touch with us, send us listener mail. You know, we always love that. SkippyDougals at gmail.com, at SkippyDougals on Twitter, and SkippyAndDougals.substack.com is where you can find our writing. Thanks, guys. 